may be seated. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn to John chapter 8. If you have a Bible this morning that the passage is not there, we'll get to that in just a few minutes, I invite you to open the Bible in the pew and turn to page 894. Beginning in uh, verse 53 of chapter 7. They went each to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been called in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses commands us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charges to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that you would show us Jesus. Show us our hearts. And show us our need of him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So in 2011, there was a movie that came out entitled October Baby. And if you haven't seen the movie, I highly recommend it. Uh, And also the downside of me using this as an illustration is that I'm about to ruin the movie for you. So (laughs) um, I'm not going to touch on all the the significant parts of the movie, but I do encourage you to go and read it. Uh, But anyway, the movie is about a young girl named Hannah, and she's experiencing some psychological issues, some health issues. Uh, And so she finally, she goes and visits all these doctors, and then finally, um, her parents kind of sit her down and they have a discussion with her, and they reveal to her uh, that she was adopted and that she was a product of a failed abortion attempt. And kind of hearing this, Hannah was kind of outraged and furious. You know, why, why did their parents not share this information with her before? Because you would think that this would be something that she should know, right? And so she kind of sets off on this, um, this trip during spring break, most of you guys got back from spring break. Hopefully you didn't take a trip like this. But she took this trip to, get, to kind of go search out her history, to kind of go find her birth mom. Because she was seeking to, uh, to find that connection that she had with a woman who gave her birth. She left feeling unwanted and alone because her parents just dropped this bomb on her that they were not, she was not hurt theirs. And so she goes on this trip, and she, she went, and she ran into the, she found her mother. And when she met her mother, she, the mother didn't want to have anything to do with her. 
She was a successful lawyer. She kind of moved on. And so Hannah, again, feeling unwanted, alone. So she went back home, and she, she, well, her dad came in to get her, and on the way back, her dad was walking, helping her process some of these things. And she came to realize that through the, the love and the compassion showed to her by her adopted family, she realized that she mattered. She was loved. And I can imagine what it's like to be in Hannah's shoes. I think a lot of us in here can imagine what it's like to the emotional aspect of going and searching and finding your birth mom and realizing that she has no, she doesn't want you. She has no desire to be in a relationship with you. And to top that off, to realize that your parents, that you thought were your parents were your real parents, and that, that could be discouraging. Be sad. That would probably leave me to anger and frustration. So I'm sure a lot of us couldn't, we can't really identify with this, right? But I think we can recall a time in our life when we've ran into someone or if we've struggled ourselves with showing compassion and forgiveness to those that have hurt us. Or better yet, sometimes when we've seen or we've let someone else and their sin kind of cause us to be withdrawn from them. And then leaving them feeling abandoned and alone in the process. To this day, this movie continues to remind me or calls me back as a follower of Christ to be willing to always show compassion and forgiveness regardless of the circumstances and mistakes of others around me. And this passage this morning is kind of a beautiful example of that, right? As we're called to live out this example that we find here in John 8 to this lost world. It's, a, it's an odd passage. It's not found in the early manuscripts, and so a lot of the scholars actually place it in another part of John, or they even added like a little note at the bottom saying, this is not included in the early manuscripts, so you kind of have to be cautious or suspicious of it. But what I think about this passage, this passage is very fruitful for us as believers because it shares with us the heart of Jesus. And his love for those that are around him. And so if you were to take this passage and if you were to put it up against every other passage that we see, Jesus interacting with sinners, it fits well. It fits well with the heart of Jesus and the love he has for the broken. This passage teaches us and teaches me to evaluate my own heart issues and how often I struggle with showing compassion towards those around me, whether they are believers or non-believers. And I think it does that, that for all of us as we look at it and struggle with this difficult interaction here with this woman called adultery. So to help us understand this passage, there's three ways we can look at it. We can look at it through the three events that occurs. One, we can look at the test, and that's verses one through five. The answer, and then finally we go look at our response. So let's look at the beginning verses 1 through 5, and let's talk about the test. So John kind of starts off by providing the context of this passage, this encounter that takes place. Jesus is going into the temple, and as he enters it, he kind of gathers others around him. He's preparing to teach them about the things concerning the kingdom. 
And this is kind of common around this time, that teachers would, would gather his disciples around them and kind of, they, he would educate his followers on the law. And so this is not very uncommon. This is something that would typically take place when you have teachers and disciples. And as Jesus is lecturing, there's this, this group of scribes and Pharisees that kind of break into the lesson and drag in this woman that is called in adultery. So can you imagine how awkward this is? Here you are, Jesus is lecturing, or you're just sitting there and you're listening to Jesus talk about the kingdom, talking about the Beatitudes, talking about his love, talking about what he's come to do and how his kingdom is coming and how his kingdom is new. And all of a sudden you have this woman being dragged in there. More than likely her clothes are falling off because remember, she was calling the axe. And you're watching this. Think about how awkward this is for the people, for his disciples. And the men that are dragging this woman, these are men of kind of, of high reputation within the community. They're looked, up, they're looked up to. The scribes and the lawyers. And they're dragging this woman. Now we know, let's... These two people, we've seen them over and over in Scripture, right? We know the scribes. The scribes sometimes, according to Sproul in the Scripture, referred to as the Jewish theologians. They're the ones who were the experts for the Old Testament law. And so they're the ones that you would seek out for deep theological issues. When there's a problem with the law, that the scribe is someone that you would go to. When you need interpreting the Old Testament law, you would go to a scribe. I mean, I kind of know the second group pretty well because they're the ones, you know, they're the Pharisees. They're the ones who identified as the separate ones. They're the ones who sought to be experts of not only studying the law, but obeying the law. They followed the law to the T. The law of Moses, as well as the tradition of the elders, the extra laws. But both groups, though, oppose Jesus and his teachings. Now the woman. The woman brought before Jesus, according to the text, she was caught in adultery. This is a sin in the eyes of God, as well as in the eyes of the church. In Deuteronomy, there are tons of passages, or a few passages that point out, or that tie adultery to the punishment that there should be a punishment that is given to those that participate in the act. But there's two issues about this, this particular case. Is one is that when someone is caught in adultery, both of the people are guilty. Both individuals are guilty of the sin of adultery. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they only bring one, and it is the woman. They're bringing her to be condemned. The second issue in the case is that most scholars would believe that there's a lack of evidence of people actually being stoned in Scripture and in history. D.A. Carson points this out. He says there's little evidence that stoning was actually carried out often in the first century Palestine, especially in the urban areas. So as you look at these verses, we notice that the scribes and the Pharisees 
they did not bring this woman to find justice. No, they brought her to test Jesus. So the trial here is not for her. The trial is for Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 6. This they said to him that they might have some, they might have some charge to bring against him. So in other words, the, the, the issue here is would Jesus uphold the law by condemning her? By condemning this woman to death because of her sin? Or would he choose not to? Therefore, giving them an example or ways that they could bring these charges against them so that they can have him arrested and put on trial to be murdered. And there's another layer of this, is that if Jesus agreed to the stoning and permitted it, he would have violated the Roman government's authority to determine capital punishment cases. Therefore, it would be putting Jesus at odds with the Roman government. So it's kind of, he's in a no-win situation, right? That's why some translations refer to this as a trap. They're trying to trap Jesus. Well, however, I think it's important for us to note the extreme extent that the scribes and Pharisees went about to bring down Jesus. They were so concerned and driven by their need to get Jesus that they were willing to humiliate this woman to do it. Remember, she was called in the act. She was probably not dressed well. They saw her not as a woman, made in God's image, but as a thing that needed to be destroyed, to be shamed. She was their pawn. I kind of had an experience like this in college when I was kind of walking. We have this place on campus. It's kind of the student union, and this is where all the, it's like the center of the campus where all the students would come. It's kind of, and then they would kind of branch off and go to their different locations. If you, and um, if you ever want to gather a crowd around you, this is the place where you would meet as a student union. And so I was coming out of the student union one, time, one day, and I was walking to class, and I ran across this gentleman. He was he grabbed his two milk crates, and he was standing on them, and he was screaming at the top of his lungs words of condemnation and despair on all these college students. He didn't know them. And I kind of stopped for a few minutes because I was, I was startled, first of all, at some of the language that he was using. Um, but then I started noticing there's a large crowd kind of gathering around him, and they would push back. And that would just encourage him to push back even harder. He started using terms to label women with, that were very inappropriate, calling them, language, calling them things that I wouldn't dare speak of. And what topped it off, he started using biblical passages, tying to them things that, you know, I don't even think these girls would even identify as. Again, he didn't know them. And so he's, he's viciously attacking these people. He's condemning them. He's embarrassing them. He's calling them things that they shouldn't, that he shouldn't call them. And I was mortified. I was mortified at the terms that he used, the labels that he threw out at all the girls and all the men that walked by. 
I was mortified that he was being a poor example of being a follower of Christ because that's pretty much what he was claiming to be. But more importantly, I was mortified that I did not do enough to stop it. For he did not see the people, he did not see those college kids as people made in God's image, deserving mercy, deserving compassion, deserving grace. Instead, he saw them as things that were deserving God's wrath, God's punishment. And in shaming them, he made them feel and identify as a lesser being, unworthy of knowing the gospel that he supposedly declared that he knew. They didn't deserve the grace that he experienced or the mercy that he experienced. To him, they deserved condemnation. And this was the thinking behind the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees as they sought to trap Jesus. How can they use this woman to benefit themselves in bringing Jesus down? How, what extent will they go at shaming her and pointing out, pointing out her flaws and her mistakes and her sin just to say, ha ha, I got you, Jesus. But how does Jesus respond to the test? I love this passage because he does not address the woman and her sin. He does eventually, but not, not at a beginning. Instead, he turns the attack on the accusers first. Look at what he does in verse 6 and 9. He said, Jesus kind of gives his answer to the mob's test. And then verse 7, he says this, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. This is the kind of drop the mic part and walk off the stage. That's kind of how I picture it in my mind. Because what he's doing here is he's drawing from two passages in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 13.9 and Deuteronomy 17.7. To inform the accusers that the one who is not guilty of the sin of lust or adultery, let him be the first one to cast the stone. So Jesus turned the accusers from focusing on the sin of this woman that they were seeking shame and to embarrass to their own heart issues. And once they realize that you're just as guilty as this woman, look at what they do in verse 9. They went away one by one. So Jesus' answer to the test was not what they wanted, but it was everything that Jesus desired. Why? Because he wanted them to see their hypocrisy in action. They were willing to shame and to punish this woman because of her sin, even without even realizing that they were just as guilty as sinners as well. And these words just strike us, right? It strikes me when I read this passage. Because I think of my own self, how often do I shame? How often do I criticize? How often do I condemn someone because of their sin? when I struggle with that same sin myself. And for me, the greatest evidence of my sin is found in interaction with my family. They're not here today because they're sick, but I'm sure they would agree. And I think a good number of us would identify with this, right? 
Why? Because our families see the real us. The other day I was reading an interview of Alex McFarland in his new book. It's called Abandoned Faith. Why millennials are walking away and how you can lead them home. In an interview, Alex kind of makes this statement regarding millennials. He says this. He says, I've got to say this as a pastor, as a researcher, as an educator, as a Christian who cares. The greatest contribution of the attrition rate of the Christian faith has been the breakdown of the family. Now, when you hear a breakdown of the family, our minds kind of want to go to quickly to the, you know, the alternative lifestyles that are out there, this false idea of the family, you know, the high divorce rate, the lack of father figures in a home, all these different things. But as you continue reading on McFarland, he says, kind of a co-author of this book, kind of, uh, kind of breaks down this idea of the family uh, to what he's trying to get at. And he says that it has nothing to do with the social issues. They're there. But ultimately, the breakdown of family is tied to Christian parents not living out their faith in the context of the home. He says this. He said, I could see now why millennials question God, his nature, his unconditional love. If what their parents believed were true, then why didn't they live it? If God is so loving, why didn't their parents show that same love to each other? So in other words, what he's saying here is the reason why millennials are leaving the church and leaving the faith is because of the hypocrisy that they're experiencing in the home. Now, I'm not quite sure I believe all that's true. I think there's a lot of issues. I don't think you can pin it to one. But when I read this, I quickly could identify with what he was getting at. How often am I quick to deal with my kid's sin, the wife, my wife's sin, how often am I quick to condemn them, to criticize them for this bad decision that they make, when I'm just as guilty as making the same mistake? And it's easy to hide your faults when your kids are young, but the older they get, the more and more I'm aware of the attempts I try to shame them, to condemn them. So when we look at Jesus' statement here, along with the mob's hypocrisy, I think it's important for us to point out that this statement, in no way does it say that we, we do not punish crime or we punish sin. I think we need to call out sin. Norma is saying that we can only condemn sin when we're perfect, because obviously that's not the case, because we're not perfect. We are called to hold our brothers and sisters accountable. We are called to uh, call them out with gentleness and love. But let's first judge and examine our own hearts before we're so quick to cast that judgment on our brothers and sisters. Or better yet, before we cast that judgment on the fallen world. I love what Calvin says about this. He says, Every man ought to begin by interrogating his own conscience and by acting both as witness and judge against himself before he comes to others. In this manner shall we, without hating men, make war with sin. Let's get our own house in order our own hearts in order before we can cast the stone out of others. 
So what is our response? Kind of after the mob leaves Jesus, John points out that Jesus was left alone with a woman. Standing before him. And then Jesus stands up and he asks her the question, woman, where are they? Directing the woman to kind of identify her accusers, right? Where are they? Where are the ones who are accusing you? And she responds, and this, what's great about this tone is his tone in the Greek is identified as respectful. His tone is one of grace, one of mercy, one of compassion towards her. Where are they? Where are those who are seeking to condemn you? And look at what she says. She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus responds by saying, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Isn't that a beautiful statement? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This woman that was caught in adultery had every right to be condemned, every right to be accused because of the one that she was standing in front of who was perfect and righteous, had every right to condemn her. But what does he tell her? Neither do I go and sin no more. I love how Sproul ties this all together. He says this. He says, if you can't relate to these words as believers, if we can't relate to these words as believers, then our hearts have been hardened. Because each one of us come to God like this woman. We're guilty. We're ashamed. We're naked. We're exposed. But Christ clothes us in a cloak of his righteousness, covering our nakedness and our shame, and says to us, neither do I condemn you. And that's how we are to relate and to act and to respond to believers and to non-believers as well. Jesus' compassion to this woman brings about forgiveness. But also he commands this woman to not to commit adultery again. He didn't sweep her sin under the rug. He addressed it. He called it out for what it was. It's a sin. But he told her to move on from it and to live your life in obedience to him. And this is important for us because it shows that Jesus was serious about her sin. He didn't overlook it, but that he was willing to forgive her despite of her sin because he had compassion towards her. And as we look at this passage, we can reflect upon what does this passage mean for us in our life? How do we respond to John 8, verses 1 through 11, this odd passage? I think, first of all, we need to be able to see that all humanity is made in the image of God. I think sometimes we want to focus on the sin and let that define the individual instead of seeing that person as a significant being made with feelings, made with thoughts, capable of love, capable of showing love. And those individuals play a role in God's plan of redemption. 
I think we can all agree with that, right? In some way, all of humanity plays a role in God's sovereign plan. It may look different than ours as believers. It may not come to the same conclusion as ours. But God is using all of humanity for his glory. And so we need to respect all of humanity. If we affirm this, I think we can relate to the believers, unbelievers and non-believers, and we can look beyond their sins and see them as people, as a person that deserve to come to the knowledge of God's grace, that deserve to hear the good news of the gospel. In 1999, Rosanna Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured English professor at Syracuse University. She was a skeptic of all things Christianity. She was in a committed lesbian relationship. Her academic specialized in queer theory, a postmodern form of gay and lesbian studies. But through mutual dialogue with a, with, over Christianity with a pastor, she developed a close relationship with him. And she said this through her interactions with him. She said, the pastor understood that I couldn't come to church because of my lifestyle. So he threatened to bring, so he attempted to bring the church to me. She continues by saying she saw and she knew the Bible verses that were used to mock at her and tell her that she was going to hell as she marched in these gay pride parades. But she didn't hear that from the pastor of the church that reached out to her. Instead, she knew that he loved her and he, that he desired for her to come to the saving knowledge of faith in Christ. And that over time, through this relationship, through this, this compassion that this pastor had for her, she was able to come to faith. And to this day, she's married to the pastor that is willing to sacrifice everything to build a relationship with her. They have adopted kids. She's now a pastor's wife because this pastor was willing to love her and look at beyond her sin and see that she's a person created in God's image needing to hear the good news of the gospel needing to be loved, needed to feel accepted. My prayer is that we would have that same approach. That we would look at all humanity with compassion and grace and keep in mind that phrase from Jack Miller that says that the gospel can change anybody, anywhere, any time. All we have to do is love the individual. Second, I think as we approach this passage, we need to come to grips that we are sinners saved by grace. We will continue to struggle with hypocrisy, right? It's a constant struggle. I struggle with my hypocrisy. But it does not mean we don't address it. Let us be quick to see our own sins 
Remember, our goal as disciples of Christ is to emulate him as much as we can, and that is to show compassion upon compassion to all who are made in God's image. But one of the ways we do that is, first of all, we have to get our own life in order. We have to examine our hearts on a daily basis, to preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis, be willing to forgive ourselves on a daily basis, be willing to seek God's forgiveness on a daily basis, and being willing to live our new life in Christ on a daily basis, showing compassion and grace and mercy to all believers and non-believers. Now, at the end of the movie of October Baby, Hannah's parents are kind of dropping her off to college. And as they're saying their goodbyes, Hannah kind of reaches over and she gives her dad a hug. And she says these words. And to be honest with you, after I heard this, I broke down. I cried. I'll confess, I cried. But she hugged her dad and she whispered these words in her ear and she said, thank you. Thank you for wanting me. My prayer, that as we continue to interact with non-believers and believers and helping them come to an understanding of the gospel and seeing them have victory over sin, that we will have more people coming to us and saying, thank you. Thank you, Covenant Presbyterian Church, for wanting me, for showing compassion to me. Despite of my sins, despite of my failures, despite of my mistakes, thank you for wanting me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for wanting us. Thank you for taking us, despite of our sin, our shame, our, the nastiness of our sin, and cloaking us in the robe of Christ's righteousness. Thank you, Father. And let that be enough to encourage us and to challenge us to go out and to show and to have that same compassion to this lost world. Lord, Father, once they hear the gospel, once they hear the good news, that they can have a relationship with the holy and mighty God through Christ, Father. Father, we pray that they would be, look to us and they would say, thank you. Thank you for wanting me. Thank you for loving me. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.